Chapter Thirty, Section One, of H. B. Burry's *The Student's Roman Empire*, Part Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. *The Student's Roman Empire*, Part Two, by John Bagnell Burry. Chapter Thirty. THE ROMAN WORLD UNDER THE EMPIRE, POLITICS, PHILOSOPHY, RELIGION, AND ART SECTION 1 THE POLITICAL DEVELOPMENT OF THE PRINCIPATE It will be well here to recapitulate the chief features which we have observed from time to time in foregoing pages as marking the political development of the Principate, from its inauguration by Augustus to the death of Marcus Aurelius. In the first place, the relations between the emperor and the senate in their joint rule gradually shift to the advantage of the emperor at the expense of the senate. The dire he instituted by Augustus has set a long way in the direction of pure monarchy by the time of Marcus. In general, the unlimited autocratic power which the emperor possessed in the large dominions subject to his imperium reacted on his limited power in Rome and Italy, the man who was absolute monarch abroad could hardly help working towards the acquisition of absolute power at home also, and if he worked towards it, he could not help winning it. In particular, the constitutional position of the princeps was strengthened by new prerogatives, especially by the censorial power, which was openly usurped by Domitian, and silently adopted by his more tactful successors. The sphere of the emperor's competence in Italy and Rome was enlarged. His province was enlarged by the acquisition of new territories, especially Britain and Dacia. His power of interfering in senatorial provinces by virtue of his Maius Imperium was more clearly recognized and more frequently exercised. None of these tendencies has reached its final consummation at the end of the second century, but it is already quite evident to what point the empire is drifting. The doyarchy will be subverted, and the princeps will become an absolute monarch. The distinction between Italy and the provinces will disappear, and the distinction between senatorial and imperial provinces will be obliterated. And therefore, when those characteristic principles, which distinguish the principate from other forms of monarchical government, have been undermined, the Principate itself will come to an end, 285 A.D., and an undisguised autocracy will take its place. Practically, indeed, though not theoretically, the emperors of the second century were very nearly absolute monarchs. Ovid had distinguished Augustus from Romulus as a princeps from a dominus, but a hundred years later the princeps in generally addressed as dominus. In the first century there is a continuous struggle, sometimes acute, between the two members of the diarchy. In the second century the struggle is over, the senate acknowledges its master without murmuring, and the emperors find it convenient to be extremely conciliatory and considerate in their relations with that body. As a political machine the principate cannot be pronounced a success. It is hardly, perhaps, fair to say that it rested on a transparent falsehood. It certainly professed to be a republic, whereas in reality it was a monarchy, 
It disguised monarchical government under republican forms. But this want of candor, which was essential to it, cannot in itself be reasonably called a fault. If the maintenance of republican forms had given general satisfaction, it could not be censured. The real fault was that the disguise did not succeed. The principal did not accomplish the object which was the sole justification of such a cumbrous machine. It did not satisfy the higher classes, in whose hands the government had rested before and after the dictatorship of Caesar. The aristocracy had governed so badly that monarchy was necessary. But when monarchy was established, the aristocracy could not with impunity be disregarded. Thus the problem set to the new monarch was to frame a constitution of such a kind that the aristocracy should have a sufficient share in the government to satisfy them and congenial political employment. That the ingenious experiment which Augustus made to solve this problem was a failure is proved by the history of the first century and the writings of Tacitus. A form of government in which a large and influential class, or a large section of such a class, does not acquiesce, or only acquiesces through fear, is so far a failure. One cannot sympathize with the desire of men like Thracia and Helvidius to recall the Republic, but their opposition shows the weak point of the Principate. The aristocracy no longer felt themselves free. If Augustus had had the experience of modern Europe and known something about the working of ministries, he might have made a better attempt at establishing a monarchy to which the nobles would have been more easily reconciled. The military side of the empire becomes more pronounced. The elevation of both Claudius and Nero was due to the attitude of the military forces at Rome. The events of the year 69 AD proved still more clearly that the creation of emperors depended on the armies, and showed, too, that they need not be created at Rome. Trajan was a military monarch, and in his time the title imperator begins to come into common use, instead of princeps, to designate the emperor, without special reference to his position as commander-in-chief. Another tendency, which we have frequently noticed, is the growing importance of the provinces. It was the provincial administration which, above all things, had made the empire a necessity, and it was in the provincial administration, above all things, that the empire was a success. The elevation of emperors of provincial family, beginning with Trajan, is in itself an important sign of the tendency to promote the provinces to the level of Italy. The Roman Senate, ever since the censorship of Vespasian, was recruited from provincial as well as Italian families. The extension of Roman citizenship was destined to reach its culmination only thirty-two years after the death of Marcus, when the Constitutio Antoniniana of Caracalla conferred it on all the subjects of the empire. 212 A.D. The tendency to political uniformity between the various parts of the empire is one of the many tendencies perceptible in the second century, which were destined to weaken and disintegrate the empire. Closely connected with it is the policy of limiting the local self-government of both Italian and provincial communities, a policy 
which was ultimately to result in a thorough-going centralization and to paralyze municipal life throughout the Roman world. On the other hand, the policy of converting non-municipal into municipal communities was largely adopted. Another sign of what was to come hereafter may be seen in the revolt of Avidius Cassius, which suggests the division and opposition of interests between the eastern and western halves of the empire. The wars of Marcus on the Danube are a foretaste of the danger which menaced the empire from the barbarians of central Europe. A hundred years before, the war of Civilis had shown conspicuously the strength of the empire, but the Marcomannic war rather displayed its weak points. The system of foreign settlements in Roman territory and its significance have been set forth in the foregoing chapter. The institution of two Augusti is also a step in the direction of disintegration. Christianity, which was destined to help in the weakening of the state, begins to attract attention. But the weakest point of the empire was its financial administration. The ancients had very little knowledge of economical causes and effects, but it is difficult to see how even they could fail to discern the results to which the cheap distribution of grain at Rome necessarily led. An immense sum was spent every year in order to keep bread cheap in a city where a variety of circumstances tended to make it dear. The singular system of annihilating capital and ruining agriculture and industry was so deeply rooted in the Roman administration that similar gratuitous distributions of grain were established at Antioch and Alexandria and other cities. The depreciation of coinage had begun with Nero and paved the way for the public frauds committed by this means on a gigantic scale by some of the emperors of the third century. This policy tended to diminish and ultimately destroyed a large part of the trading capital in the empire. The laws which regulate the distribution, the accumulation, and the destruction of wealth, the demand for labor, and the gains of industry, attest that the depreciation of the currency was one of the most powerful causes of the impoverishment and depopulation of the Roman Empire in the third century. Manners have an important influence on economy, and luxury was one of the direct causes of the financial difficulties which induced emperors to adopt the dangerous experiment of depreciating the currency. The costliest articles of Roman luxury were imported from the East, and immense sums of specie were drafted every year to Oriental countries, and never returned. The elder Pliny speaks of the Arabs as the richest people in the world, for the treasures of the Romans and the Parthiaus flow into them. The same writer mentions that the luxury of Roman women cost the state a hundred million sesterces, about eight hundred thousand pounds yearly, which went to Arabia, India, and China. But though we can detect in the second century these small beginnings of causes, which were subsequently fatal to the Roman state, no one at that time could possibly dream of such results. The period from Trajan to the outbreak of the plague under Marcus is the most brilliant period of the empire. Never was prosperity more widely diffused, seldom was the individual subject more respectfully considered, 
than under Antonius Pius. This general happiness of a large portion of the world is a pleasant prospect, though rendered somewhat melancholy by the thought of the troubles which immediately followed. But the second century has a far higher significance in the history of the world. Then began a period of legislation, the like of which men have never seen, either before or since. The Roman genius for legal construction entered on the highest phase of its development. Hadrian inaugurated, Pius and Marcus fostered, the movement which was to produce Papinin and Ulpian. The principles of jurisprudence, which were developed then, form the basis of the law which at present prevails in most countries of continental Europe. But it is worthy of note that the spirit of humanity which animated the Roman legislators of this period was probably a source of weakness for the empire. It was a departure from the general traditions of Roman antiquity, a simultaneous movement in the direction to which not only Christianity, but also the later Greek philosophies were pointing. Having reviewed the political tendencies of the empire, we may now proceed to a brief survey of contemporary philosophy and religion. End of chapter 30, section 1